following podcast may contain strong language not suitable for all student debt holders. This podcast may not be suitable for people on the far left or the far right. In fact, it may not even be suitable for the center. All right. We are here with Seattle City Council District 2 candidate Ari Hoffman. Hi, Ari. How are you doing today? How's it going? Thanks for having me, guys. Of course. We're happy to have you. And I'm going to be interviewing Ari today with Jay, who normally does production, but I'm going to remember to introduce you, which I never remember to do on the podcast. I'm super excited to be here because you've let me out of the editing dungeon. And frankly, I'm really excited. And I'm really excited to get a chance to sit down and speak with you, Ari, today, because I know we share a lot of interests with regards to popular culture. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. We're definitely going to talk about your campaign, though. Oh, I was really hoping for the whole Back to the Future discussion about really when you go into timeline B from timeline A from, you know, 2015. How does that result in changes of time? How does it do that? I was really looking forward to that, man. Well, there's still time. We can do that later tonight. Just making sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've got we've got time. I don't have anywhere to be except work tomorrow at 530 in the morning. Um, <laughs> so I guess we'll just start we'll kind of ease into it. I mean, so in just a couple brief sentences, two, three minutes, just what made you want to run for the seat? If the city council was doing their job, I wouldn't have to be doing this. In any city I've ever lived in, I never knew the names of any of my Seattle, or I'm sorry, not just Seattle, but any city council members, because it's not something I was interested in. Politics is something you more just listen to or watch the West Wing or watch Parks and Rec. It wasn't an interest of mine. But then when it started affecting me, it started affecting my community. It's something I started getting more active in. So last year, when we started having the problem out at the cemeteries, where the broken down RVs and the people in their tents started moving in next to the cemeteries and dealing drugs out of the cemeteries and running prostitutes out of the cemeteries. They caused about $300,000 worth of damage to the cemeteries in vandalism and desecration. And that number's still growing because we're still having the problem. That's when it started affecting my community and I got more involved and I opened my eyes to what was going on around me. And I said, there's got to be a better solution for this. And when I tried to get engaged with the politicians that were my representatives, they refused. They stood us up. They didn't want to be involved. And I said, there's got to be a better way for this. So one of the reasons I give out my business cards as opposed to door hangers or anything else like that is you can always get a hold of me. And now my email suffering because of it and my phone suffering because of it. But at the same time, I want to be accessible like I never had access to the politicians that were supposed to represent me. No, I think that makes a lot of sense, Ari, because obviously Sarah had a campaign too, and we felt very similar is that there was this gap between the people who were elected and who they're supposed to be representing and also who they represented. And that felt very, I don't know, like it made me feel not necessarily unsafe, but like I felt unheard. I felt unheard in the sense that politics for me was supposed to be about We have people, and that's what they're supposed to be represented first and foremost. That's always been my principle, and that's always been what my parents raised me to believe. It's always been what I was raised to think of. And so I think that's a really good answer. Like, I'm actually really excited to hear that. Um, I got to ask some questions. So we hinted at some of the things earlier. Hobbies, man. Like, what are you into? Like, what's your your favorite Star Wars movie? My favorite Star Wars movie? Yeah, there's a wrong answer to this. There is. But if it's not Empire... Right, because Empire is my favorite Star Wars movie, but at the same time, my favorite Star Wars scene is over Sarlacc's pit in Jedi. That's my favorite scene, even though the Luke "I am your father" is the one that everybody talks about. Oh, did I just spoil that? I'm so, so sorry. I just Spoilers. ruined all the children. I should have been more clear uh. about that. The Last Jedi, I hated the Last Jedi, but I love the scene where Luke just brushes off his shoulder a little bit after all the AT-ATs are firing at him. So there's different levels of favorite when you're a true 
aficionado of Star Wars. I feel that. I really do. Because interestingly, Last Jedi is one of my favorite Star Wars movies. And oh, we can get into man, that later. Man, I but. thought we were going to agree on more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what are your hobbies, man? Like, what are you into? I love pop culture. Pop culture song I love. I love baseball. I love water skiing. I love bounce houses. Oh, wait, that's a job. Uh, <laughs> I heard about that in The Stranger. <laughs> exactly. The bounce house tycoon. Really, I love hanging out with my kids and doing things with my kids. I love taking them to Comic-Con, though their eyes started wandering this year. So we decided maybe we should wait till they're a little bit older before going back to Comic-Con. I love, love, love baseball. I love the New York Mets. I'm from New York originally. I'm a glutton for punishment that way in my politics and both of my hobbies. I love water skiing. I love being out on the water, that kind of stuff, being out in nature, kayaks, canoes, all that kind of stuff, and bike riding. I love bike riding, but I'm a recreational cyclist. I don't commute that way. So I bike ride four months out of the year, which is why I'm looking a little pudgy right now. Well, you'll have lots of doors to knock to hopefully knock off. Hopefully that's working. My wife is enjoying that part of it because I'm losing a little bit of weight because of it. I know how you feel. Right when we started campaigning was when I dedicated myself to health. And I was like, just in time to get at least 50,000 steps in every day. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, you know, this is more of like a localized question. What is where's your favorite place to eat in Seattle? For me, the options are really limited because the kosher restaurants here are terrible. (laughs) I mean, I wish I could say, oh, they're fantastic. And here's the best deli in town. The best place to eat is when my father-in-law barbecues. When I barbecue, when the synagogue does an event called Busserfest, which means meat fest in Hebrew. Mm. So when we do something like that, that's when everybody gets excited. A few years ago, we had Willie's uh, Barbecue Soul come in and they went kosher for the day for our event. So events like that, that's where I love to eat. If it talk about my favorite bar, I love going to Columbia City. I love going to Lottie's. I love going to Rack and Tour, going downstairs. Those are my favorite places to hang out. And this new place, the shop in Soto, where they have all the classic cars that are in storage, plus they also have a bar there, that place is incredible. So I'd say those are my top places. There used to be a thing where you could get kosher dinner at the top of the Space Needle. They would bring it in special for you, but they stopped doing that a few years ago. But that was amazing. That was anniversary birthday because it was expensive. But that was something special, going up there and having the food because that's a treat for us because I have a strictly kosher diet. No, I feel it, man. I'm really glad to hear you mention classic cars, too, because actually one of my first cars was a 68 Mustang. Oh. Now, I'll be honest, it wasn't an 8. It was an i6 200, but I was 19 <laughs> years old, and it looked pretty. And so that was really a big one for me. So I'll tell you something is that my first car was a 73 Camaro. Mustang Camaro. See, dude, we got to find something that we're coming together on with this kind of stuff. If we're going to keep having these classic rivalries, we just can't keep doing that all night, man. <laughs> It'll make for good discussion, though. Like, I'm really excited to do it. So uh, I'll forgive you for the Camaro comment because we all know who the king is. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, We got some more questions for you. This is one that's really near and dear to our hearts. Pets. We have two studio dogs, and I frequently tweet pictures of them. We have Virgil and Homer. There's a theme. I have a degree in classical studies. That's very good. I want a third dog that's a girl, and I want to name it Sappho, but somebody who will not be named and may or may not be my partner sitting next to me uh, will not let me get a third dog. (laughs) So with pets, when I was growing up, there was a guy who lived down the street from us, and he was a paleontologist, and he would spend months out of the year touring the world and going on digs, and he would leave his pets with us. And he had some very interesting pets, baby iguanas, snapping turtles, scorpions, boa constrictors. These are things we watched. Rats, mice, all these kind of things. We took care of them. We had gerbils. We had hamsters. My sister had a bunny rabbit. So I didn't really want a pet when I got older. And I have kids now and they do their business everywhere. So I don't really feel like cleaning up after anything else. But at the same time, my in-laws have dogs. We're a dog family. We're allergic to cats. So cats are not allowed in our house. My wife is allergic. I'm allergic. We don't know if the kids are yet. So we keep them away from them. But we are not cat people at all. Dogs all the way. I feel it. I'm also allergic to cats, but uh, I can't help myself. I got to pet them whenever I see them. It's just they're too cute. I know. I can't help it. <laughs> and we're, uh, let's get into some uh, some serious cues. Go. Yeah. Uh, so Ari, 
I've said this on the podcast in the past, and we're going to get into like some of the more serious questions, some of the ones that always have more depth. For example, we're always told what to not to talk about politics, religion. Let's talk about them. So for me, I grew up as a conservative evangelical Christian. That meant that my faith really impacted my life. I was told you have to believe a certain thing and you have to vote for a certain person in order to be it. You want to be a good Christian? You vote Republican. You want to be a good Christian? You vote against abortion. So let's talk about this religion for you. How has it impacted your life? Does it affect your politics now? Like, give me some insight. There's a misconception about Orthodox Judaism. I'm an Orthodox Jew. There's a name in Hebrew, which is also in English, called Daniel, Daniel, Daniela, different versions of that. And what that means in Hebrew is God judges. It is never our job as people to judge what's going on. We have these rules that we follow, but it's not our job to judge that. That is God's job. And that's what we believe as observant Jews. That's our kind of thing. Unfortunately, we get hit with the stigma all the time that, oh, you're doing this wrong. You're doing that wrong. That's against this. It may be against thing, but it's not my job to judge that. That's not my role in this world. So I accept you for whoever you are. Are, whatever you want to be, whatever your politics are. One of my closest friends is a Yankee fan. So that's Ooh. strike number one, right? Ooh. And I'm a Mets fan. But he is also a hard, hardcore leftist. And we go to baseball games together. We hang out together. We talk politics together. We make fun of each other because it's not personal. That happens to be his opinion. And I think something that's missing from our discussion, especially locally, forget about nationally. I don't even want to talk about national right now. But locally is, can we sit down and have a conversation like we're having right now over drinks, over water, about dogs, about cameras, about pop culture, and do it that way? So how does religion affect my opinion? There's what my religion believes, but we have a separation of church and state in this country. And it doesn't mean that's what my policies are. So on just to comment a little bit on a on a national scale, there's a lot of folks in some deeply marginalized communities like uh, the LGBTQ community, like communities of color who do take politics extremely personally. So how do you approach those people with the with the idea that breeding more discussion is really what's going to help move the move the needle in either direction? Because these are people who are seeing policies like bans and and um, policies like regulations on who they are and who they who they are trying to be like abortion bans because we're women. Um, we're seeing trans bans on trans trans folks in the military, communities of color are struggling with some of the worst income inequality of any community, particularly indigenous communities. Um, how do you respond to those people who do take it personally? Let's just take the abortion thing for a second. I'm not trying to get into national issues, but I don't have a uterus. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a judge. It's not my opinion that matters. It's not my call to make. And on a local level, it's not my call to make. There's a lot of things that Seattle is more progressive when it comes to that have already made those decisions for us. When somebody says to me, I'm gay, or I'm this, or I'm that, fine. It's not who you, I mean, it's who you are, but it's not, it doesn't change my opinion of you. You are who you are. I am who I am. It shouldn't matter that that's what you know, defines us. I don't want that to define us. I want to define that we're having a discussion. We can sit down and discuss whatever it is, regardless of who you are. And what I find interesting is this people of color thing, are Jews people of color or not? We're one-tenth of one percent of the world's population. Some people say we're people of color. Some people say we're not people of color. You're looking at a guy who looks like a white guy. And if I took this thing off my head, would I pass as an Irish guy? Probably, because I got the red in here and everywhere else like that. How do you define a person of color? Because Jews define themselves as people of color. How do you break that down? Who says, I'm this, I'm that. I go with whatever you say you are. Cool, you're this. Fantastic. Let's go with that. So I want to go back here. And I actually, I think you're bringing up a really interesting distinction there. I mean, there's certainly like Sephardic Jews typically are a little more dark skinned. This is not uncommon. A good friend of mine who is Sephardic, he is dark skinned. And I think this is interesting for me to see too, because I think it's a really interesting discussion. Like what does ethnicity look like? What does it kind of entail? But I want to bring back one question that you 
asked, or one thing that you didn't mention. So does religion affect the way that you view the political world? I think I kind of covered that. I'm not trying to dodge your question, if that's the thing. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to answer it as best as I can. With regards to religion, religion shaped who I am. And that's for me. I'm trying to do what's best for the city. This isn't a dance around your question kind of thing, but how does my religion affect what's going on? Let me give you an example. My religion says I have to give 10% of everything that I earn to charity. I give more than that because that's something I'm very, very passionate about. I want to make sure that these people have everything they need. It says you need to leave a certain amount of your field left over for the people who don't have. So that way they can have what they need. Taking care of the poor is something that is very, very essential to who my religion is. I don't need to impose my religious beliefs on anybody. That's not my business. It's against our constitution. It's against a whole bunch of other things. But if you take like where my ideology comes from, where my belief system comes from, yeah, it comes from there. So for example, I'll tell you a story. My mom used to make challahs for Shabbos every single week when my parents were still married, as most Jewish mothers do. Fantastic. Great. And my father would take him to Grand Central Station and give him to the people living in the tunnels. And one day he gives it to a guy. The guy rolls over and it was a guy he went to school with. My parents brought him home and he lived with us for a while, but he wasn't mentally all there. And one day he said he wanted to go back to his tunnel. That stuck with me. So who, what your religion is, how you got brought up, who raised you, what ideas they raised you with, what morals they raised you with shapes you. This is all part of who you are. So that's who I am, 100%. That doesn't mean that's what I'm going to do. And if you look at my policies, I don't think you really see this is caused by this religious thing. This is caused by that. And my policies are laid out on my website for everybody to see. A lot of politicians go, well, just email me and I'll talk to you about it. No, everything's there so you know exactly who I am and what I stand for. So that kind of ties into a, a good next question that we had for you. We're trying to get some of the general stuff out of the way, and then we're going to get a little whittle it down, get a little more difficult. <laughs> uh, I believe a conversation was had asking for some of the tougher questions that maybe bring you away from some stuff people know you for. I got to tell you, I'm tired of having these softball questions at these forums. So you guys want to hit me with whatever, <laughs> just chuck them out, chuck them out. Oh, we don't will. we will. Don't. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I guess that kind of brings us to, to something that I think is really important. What, as far as you as a person, what do you think the role of government is wow that's interesting let's let's break that down a little bit didn't ask for softball questions no that's a, that's <laughs> a great question and nobody's really ever put that one to me i think the government should be a helpful force it should be something that helps us but these are our rules of law that's how i view government these are the rules we do and government takes care of the roads takes care of the police department takes care of the bridges takes care of that kind of stuff that's what i want but i don't want them telling me who i am I don't want them bothering me with my rights. I want to make sure I have all the rights that the government guarantees me. I don't want them taking away any. I don't want them doing anything to me that affects my quality of life. Now, if I'm messing with somebody else's life and they're making the rules to stop that, I get that 100%. But I would say it's more of these are the guidelines to our society. This is how we do it. And these are the things that I think government should take care of. So basic necessities, that's pretty much how I view government. So do you think there are limitations to that? So I want to give you a couple examples Free speech is a common one. Uh, there are some people who argue that we should limit speech. And for example, like hate speech or even speech that might incite to violence or people who are discussing like racism or those kind of things. Do you think we should limit free speech or do you or here's another example. But the second one is like guns. You know, the Second Amendment does guarantee the right to bear arms. And that's been upheld numerous times by the Supreme Court. Do you support that kind of legislation? Like. Just kind of give me an idea. Do you support limitations on these rights? Where do you think we draw those lines? Let's do one at a time and remind me to come back to the gun thing. Okay? Because I know you're going to bring up the NRA thing eventually. So let's come back to the gun thing in a second. First, let's do the free speech. There are tons of people who rip me online. 
And some of it I find extremely offensive. Some of it I find racist. Some of it I find anti-Semitic. I'm not calling for them to be shut down. I just want to make sure I'm protected if they're doing anything stupid. And one person in particular actually said people should show up and protest my events. As an observant Jew living in the world, I had to live with a synagogue where the FBI had to do a sting to catch some people who were planting bombs on our synagogue. That happened in my synagogue in New York. You always hear about synagogues being swastika and other things. I was, I had issues as a kid where some neo-Nazis chased me through some backyards one time. These things have happened to me and I'm used to it. It's something I knew was going to come up because of the campaign. Are they allowed to say what they want? A hundred percent. But my government has a responsibility to protect me if they're going to do anything stupid. Do I think the government should limit free speech? No, because if I say they should limit this person's speech, what's to stop them from limiting my speech? That's where I draw the line personally. You want to get into specific things of treason and hate. I'm not a legal bucky, as we say in my religion, to know where that goes, where that ends. This is just my opinion. Well, I just want to ask one follow-up question sure. to that, uh, which is simply this. So I'm with you all. And I read the I read that specific person's comments about coming to your rallies and those kind of things. And I understand kind of the concern around it. Where do you think we draw the line? So do you think that, for example, protest should be protected? at all times to think that there shouldn't be, there should be limitations to that. How do you feel about it? I did not like that Facebook banned Farrakhan. I didn't. I think that as reprehensible as what that man says is, he should be able to say what he wants because we have freedom of speech in this country. Now, if he's saying you should target so-and-so because there are so-and-so, then you have a different issue. If they're calling for outright violence, they're calling for outright threats, then you have a problem. They're calling for something against the government or a political officer or something like that, which can be seen as a threat. That I understand you have problems. But if somebody wants to say whatever crazy thing they want to say, look, I like when people rip me online. And that sounds weird because it just gives me more attention. And I don't think they figured that out yet. Maybe they will be by listening to the podcast. But every time they mention my name, I'm getting more donations like the King County Young Democrats when they said, do not vote for Ari Hoffman under any circumstances. I had a record donation day that day in 24 hours because of that kind of stuff. No, I think that's a good call out. Um, I will say this, and this is kind of my feeling on it. Uh, I think there are limitations to free speech, specifically when it's an incitement to violence. You know, on our campaign, we were very lax. Uh, we didn't worry too much about who came or anything like that. Not exactly the same thing. Um, clearly, there are different reasons. But Sarah identified openly as a socialist. And I don't know if you know this, but... A democratic socialist? Thank you very much. There is a difference. <laughs> and I will get into an ideological battle with you right now. Fair. Uh but that's not exactly a very popular perspective. And so for me, I think we need to be having these kind of like nice limitations on it to some extent. But I don't know. Facebook's a private entity. I'm cool with them limiting who they want to just because that's the nature of business. It's a business thing and they can do what they want. I'm not hating on Facebook, but I'm saying if the U.S. government wanted to censor Farrakhan or anything Fair. like that, I'd be against it. I agree with you 100% that violence, and that's what I was saying before, you have to stop that. You have to cut it dead in its tracks. A lot of times, what do we hear when some violent event happened? Oh, he was saying stuff like that for years. Well, why didn't anybody do anything? Why didn't anybody say anything? I agree with you 100%. I'm a big fan of see something, say something. I was in New York during 9-11. Not that that would have changed anything necessarily, but there's a lot of things that could have been avoided that were attacks that we've heard about, shootings that we've heard about where the person had a history of this stuff and nobody's, oh yeah, oh, we knew that was coming. Well, why didn't you say anything if you knew that? 
And I think, you know, I'm going to just bring it back because the request was made. So let's draw back to the to the guns thing, too. And I mean, I'm going to speak in light of the March for Our Lives, in light of the the Virginia shootings, um, in light of a year that's shaping up to be a record for mass shootings. So should there be any limitations on the Second Amendment in order to help prevent the deaths of, of kids and students in schools? The only two guns I have are these two. <laughs> and I know that right. I know that a lot of people are criticizing me because I didn't interview with the NRA and they see me as the pro gun guy. I do not own guns. I have other ways of protecting my family that have had to get more extreme because of what's been going on recently, which is sad. No other candidate is spending the money on security like I am. I wish I didn't have to do that. You understand you ran for office. You understand the difference between somebody who says something stupid and somebody who's actually a threat. And it's unfortunate. And you have to look into the character of the person to find out that kind of stuff. For me, as long as somebody who's coming after me is going to have these weapons legally or illegally, which is common, I want to make sure that my family is protected. I want to make sure that I can defend myself. I did go and get a concealed weapons permit when things were going bad at the cemetery because things were getting so bad out there. I stopped short of buying the weapons themselves because I have kids in the house. I don't have the right training to use them. I think that everybody should have the right training if they're going to own a weapon. That's my own personal thing. I don't think you should own one just, oh, I can go buy one, whatever. That's my personal thing. But at the same time, I think that in our synagogue, there are a lot of people who are the designated carriers. And you're not supposed to carry things like that on the Sabbath. They're considered muksa, which means you can't use them on the Sabbath. But there are people who are allowed to do that because they are protecting us. And what happened in Powoy in San Diego with the shooting a lot of lives were saved because the guy was carrying. So as long as the bad guys are going to have weapons, I want to make sure that the good guys have weapons in order to protect them. And when we had to do that out at the cemetery, that was a last ditch effort because nobody was helping us out. And here's something interesting. When we brought Israeli soldiers to defend the cemetery because nobody was helping us out for a month, it was quiet because word got out. And actually people were spreading rumors. They were there for one night for one night. And word got out, they were saying, there's Israeli snipers in the bushes. They were saying that. Reporters were hearing that. People were calling me, asking me if that was true. Somebody even called the police and said, Ari Hoffman is planning on going to the cemetery and shooting homeless people. It was awful. But for me, it was about protecting the graves of our ancestors, of our relatives, of the people who needed it done. And I want to make sure they were protected appropriately. The NRA, just one last thing, the reason I did the interview with them is because I want my message out to as many people as possible. I do not subscribe to their politics. I have nothing to do with their politics. I'm not a member. And what's interesting is people like Shiloh Jama from the People's Harm Reduction Alliance also did interviews with the NRA, I assume for the exact same reason, just like all the Democrat candidates are going on Fox News these days because they want their message out to as many people as possible. Yep. I uh, have one of my biggest clips was when I went on Fox News and answered questions appropriately about how we would pay for it with a plan about how to pay for it. Um, yeah, I mean, Jay, you look like you have something you want to say or ask. I, I just want to clarify one thing. So do you support restrictions on the Second Amendment or not? I don't know what restrictions, saying restrictions, I don't know what that means. And I'm not getting into the national politics. I'm not saying this is a dodge. I don't want to say something I don't understand as much. I'm not a gun owner. I don't understand all the different rules. Do I agree with background checks? 100%. Do I think that we should make sure that the right people are carrying? Do I think you need safety courses before buying a firearm? 100%. Do I think that people with mental disorders should have firearms? No. Something interesting in Israel. Do you know that if you're getting divorced in Israel, they take away your gun? They take away your gun because they're worried you're going to do something stupid with it. Something like that, I am fine with. I am fine with that. So if you want to say, am I in favor of restrictions? Yes, I'm in favor of restrictions. Am I in favor of all the restrictions? No, it's not a black or white issue. There's a lot of gray area in there. Yeah. And I think on our campaign, we took some flack for some of these policies too, because I think we kind of align on some of this in the sense that we don't support blanket restrictions because we do believe that there are marginalized communities 
that utilize local support and local, for lack of a better word, militia to protect their community. Something you should know is that in World War II, before World War II, with the Nazis, one of the first things they did was see who was a registered gun owner who was Jewish and took away the weapons. That's something people take very, very seriously. They think about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. They think about all that kind of stuff. And when they say never again, they mean it. There's a lot of Jews who carry because they take these things so seriously. It's like Jews with passports. Most Jews I know always have a passport because they're always worried when are things going to go bad. And I often think of my ancestors who died in the Holocaust. When did they realize it was too late? When did they realize we shouldn't be here anymore and we should have left and we should have taken measures to protect ourselves? That's something that kind of scares me. And it's something I... You don't want to say that kind of stuff's going to happen in America. We don't be- want to believe that kind of stuff could ever happen in America, but it's always in the back of our minds. I don't want to sound like a paranoid guy, but it's happened in so many other countries. Are we due for it almost? It's the kind of thing you just, it it scares you. As somebody who's na- whose religion has been persecuted for so many years, it's something you think about. And so one of the things I actually want to comment on is um, you talked about having to up security. So there is a lot of hullabaloo about private or not private on duty or off duty security forces that you've hired to to attend events with you or they volunteer or something. Can you set the record straight on that entire story for I us? I know there was a hullabaloo. I think I missed There's the Twitter a conversation. There's a big story on Twitter. And There's like a big story Facebook about and- this? <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but you're kind of a big deal on Twitter right now. <laughs> I feel very famous. I feel loved. I really do. So we're curious just for the facts on it. I will break it down source. piece by piece with you for Please. everything. The first time we brought security to the cemetery, they were former students of mine because I used to run a youth organization that are Americans that went and joined the Israeli Defense Forces. It's very common when you're an Orthodox Jew that the year in between high school and college, you go and study in yeshiva or seminary or you go join the Israeli army. There's different options. So these guys had gone to do that and came back and volunteered to guard the cemetery because this was pissing them off pardon the expression. They were really upset about this whole thing. It was their relatives who were there. They were very upset about it. They were volunteers. At my campaign events, it is 100% all paid people. 100%. Because back then, the money from the cemeteries that we make doing funerals and things of that nature, that pays for the synagogues. We had lost $300,000. We didn't have much more money to spend. That pays for synagogue services. That pays for people who need it. So ironically, because these other people were defacing and desecrating the cemeteries, we couldn't use that money for our community. We couldn't spend any more money for this kind of stuff. And the Jewish war veterans who were doing this event on Memorial Day, putting the flags out the graves with the kids from the synagogue, they were really worried. They were thinking about canceling the event. Those guys were volunteers. 100% they were volunteers. From then on, it's been paid security. At the synagogues, it's paid security every time we need them because we want to follow the law and make sure that everything's followed and everything's on the up and up, especially when it comes to a campaign. When it came to an event that we were doing to protect everybody, we take the volunteers, we take them as they are. The guys who were there were um, from security companies that they got permission from to be there because that's their job that they do now. Okay, good. I mean, I guess we're going to I'm going to move us into a little bit more some some more broad questions now. Uh, I know those were very specific. <laughs> <laughs> I so, didn't even know that fight was going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's something we we do a lot of research before we bring people on. We make sure that we know what we're, what we're we know what we're talking about. Oh, one second. I want to clear the air. Favorite Marvel superhero. Oh, okay. This was an online thing that some people got pissy with me about, which is interesting. I think I know where this is going. Yeah, you know where this is going. If you follow the Twitter account, you know where this is going. When Iron Man first came out, I'm a DC guy. Sorry, dude. I'm a DC guy. I like Superman. I like Batman. Those are my two favorites. I love your animated Batman over there. That's why that jumped out at me right away. When 
Iron Man first came out and I was running this youth organization, a lot of people said that my personality is very similar to Tony Stark's personality. I don't know if that was a compliment or not. I just don't know what they were trying to imply with that. There was even a video that since they were looking through all my videos, I'm sure they saw this one where somebody actually superimposed me into Iron Man's suit. It's very entertaining with this whole thing, the whole opening of Iron Man 2. Iron Man is my favorite celebrity Marvel character because of that, but Captain America was always my favorite Marvel hero when I was reading comic books. All right, well then you mentioned DC. Let's hear it. Who's your favorite? Oh, it's, it's, it's Superman all the way. Superman's my boy, but Batman, I like that his grit because he has no powers. I like that. I actually didn't have a problem with Ben Affleck. I had a problem with the movies. Ben Affleck wasn't the problem. The problem was the script and everything else that went with it. Wonder Woman was phenomenal. Um, Aquaman was, eh. How did we go from the Dark Knight to what we have now? The Dark Knight was the pinnacle of superhero movies, and now we have the Justice League and this other garbage. I have two words for you. It's Zack Snyder. <laughs> <laughs> he destroyed Man of Steel. That was out the window. Uh, it's just, uh, I don't even want to talk about it. This, this is making me been, upset. This is like a whole road trip's worth of complaints right here. It's just Zack Snyder. You just have to say those words. It's a road trip's worth of complaints. Uh, it's no good at all. Uh, but I mean, there's something near and dear to us here in Seattle that we're very big on. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things we're very big on in Seattle, but this is particularly one that's at the forefront because we've got kids from coast to coast fighting for this this is it's a hugely national issue but at the same time it's also a hyper local issue and i actually think this is one of the reasons why this is so important it's so interesting to see the dynamic in uh, local politics and national politics and how they actually play together um do you believe in climate change and would you support legislation to fight it i was so excited for this comment to come up for this question to come up let me ask you guys a question first i'm going to answer your question with a question how's your sarcasm meter growing up on the east coast so good and i'm so dry so some people can't even tell sometimes. <laughs> and I think that's what happened. Now, let me explain this the long way to explain this to everybody. Of course, I think climate change is a problem, but I'm not a scientist, so I don't know all the details. I've never delved into it. Something I would love to pursue, and I'm still reading up on it. I know it's controversial, is just like in Back to the Future 2, you know that technology exists. Waste to energy. That exists, and I would love to find a way to bring that to Seattle, to bring a waste to energy plant, just like a giant Mr. Fusion, to Seattle if it's practical. And if it's carbon neutral or if it saves emissions, any of that kind of stuff, I would love to be the person who's sponsoring something like that. Let's just get that right there. Now with the sarcasm stuff, I knew that when I brought guns held by former Israeli soldiers who are Jewish to a cemetery to solve a problem that the Seattle City Council wasn't going to solve, I would get a reaction. And I got one like that. So I said, hey, let's ride this train and see how far I can take it because I really oppose the soda tax. I really, really, really oppose the soda tax because I love Coca-Cola and I love Pepsi and I was really upset and I just wasn't going to pay for that. Wasn't going to do it. So I said, I wonder if I tag them in the climate change stuff. Will that get a reaction? Unfortunately, it got a reaction a year later and they decided to make this whole big deal over it. And when she called me for that interview, I was laughing the entire interview, not at the climate change stuff, but at the absurdity of questioning my comments. Did you really put your car into park and rev the engine at every single traffic? No, of course I didn't. But I'm like, are you seriously asking? Is this really what you want to talk about? And that's why I tagged the mayor and every city council member in all those posts. In fact, if you look at those posts, you see the Millennium Falcon because I was making jokes about being a smuggler, doing the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs, and I was making Dukes of Hazard references. I was doing all of it 
to get a reaction. I want to be a good steward of the environment. But what I don't understand is why nobody wants to talk about the local issue of how much waste is going into the Puget Sound, how much waste is going into Lake Washington, how the meth content of Lake Washington and the opioid content of Lake Washington, we're seeing it in the muscles in the Puget Sound. How come nobody wants to talk about it? How come nobody wants to talk about when they clear one of these homeless encampments that the topsoil has to be taken out if you want to do something right, that the plastic needles are everywhere, but we're banning plastic straws. If we're going to be consistent on this, then let's be consistent on this. I want to make sure that we're being consistent and actually being good stewards of the environment. So do you believe the, which is pretty much a consensus at this point, in fact, they've passed the Sigma requirement for definitive evidence that climate change is real. Do you believe that the climate is changing? Do you think that's a crisis that we're experiencing right now? It snowed three feet in Seattle this year. I believe the climate is changing. I don't know enough science to say it's changing because of this. It's changing because of that. I don't know enough. I haven't studied enough. And I'm man enough to say, sorry for you know saying it that way, to say, I don't know. I don't understand. I need to do my homework. So much of this campaign has been me trying to do my homework. This is not something I ever fully researched. But for me, it's more I want to deal with the problem that's in front of me. And then we can get into the big, bigger issues. I would love to see every fleet in the Seattle City fleet, every single car in the fleet, be a hybrid vehicle or be an electric vehicle or something like that. I would love to see all that kind of stuff. If you want to buy me a Tesla today, I will get rid of my charger and I will drive the Tesla. And actually, I said that to the stranger reporter. I said, is a stranger going to buy me a Tesla? My truck, the one that has made all this news and is so interesting, my Chevy Silverado is actually, I bought that one because it's got an eco function on it and it shuts down the engine to four cylinders instead of eight cylinders once not using them it actually shuts down at red lights i bought that car specifically instead of the diesel because i said i don't need the diesel as you know as mannish as it would make me feel i don't need it i can do the hybrid one and be good for the environment actually that thing is more fuel efficient than my charger so as as also i've seen that picture of your truck everywhere and it it caused we had a slack conversation about it. We're like what is this why is this circulating um but i guess so one of the questions i have is as a city councilman so there's a lot of stuff that's been going on um surrounding the national version of the green new deal it's been happening on a local level a lot of local governments are adopting similar policies or committing to pledge to similar policies on a local level um as city councilman what would you do to fight things like those single-use plastics if that's the thing you would fight back against I have to look into it. I, For me personally, it's a convenience factor. I always find that the market, if it's affordable and it's practical, people will do it. For example, RainWise. I had a whole system. This is so funny. I'm having this conversation as a RainWise guy is beeping in on my phone because he's got questions about the project he's doing on my house. The government's paying for it. I'm going to take the money and I'm going to have be green with my house and I'm going to make sure it's wonderful and fantastic. And actually, I'm doing it to my synagogues. I'm doing it to everything else. We compost in my house because it's cheaper. I'm happy to do that. If they came out with a Tesla truck that was the same price as my truck, I would have bought the Tesla truck. I would have done it. I want to make sure that we're doing that kind of stuff. And I always do my part. I make sure to eat as many farting cows as possible. So that way they are not contributing to global warming or climate change in any way, shape or form. Perfect. I'm going to get yelled at for that one on Twitter. <laughs> I can tell already. <laughs> well, I think we're in agreement, though. It's like the reason that those programs exist, like a Rainwise, is due to government subsidies, though, right? And so those like the tax credit that just expired, thanks to Donald Trump's tax plan, uh, that's another example of a government subsidy to support those kind of things. So when you think about sitting down as a councilman and trying to think about, okay, what kind of policy would I craft? Can you think of any kind of policy you would craft? 
the thing I would want to look at before we get into the policy stuff, I want to look at how we can be more energy efficient with what we're doing right now. We are burning this much because we have X. How can we eliminate that? So does it mean converting the whole fleet over? Now, there is a concern with the electric vehicles. Are they draw? Are they making more of a carbon footprint because of what they're pulling out of the ground? That's a very real concern. How can we do this practically? How can we do this that it makes sense and not bankrupt the city in the process? How can we do it so that we're not paying $100,000 for every man, woman, and child in the city? Now, you know numbers better than I do. And you could probably break this down and tear apart any numbers I throw out at you, which is why I say I don't know what they are and I need to do my research on them. I also need to tear apart the budget the same way and say, if we're spending the money on this and I believe this is wasteful spending, where can we spend it where we better? So how can we help the environment inside what we're doing? What can we do and not bankrupt the city at the same time? For some context, uh, just so everybody knows, the running joke on our campaign was that I'm Madam Facts. I love numbers. I love facts. I love hard information. I love well-researched information. We we cite the the outlines we put up, put together for interviews because I like having that information readily available. Uh, I kind of want to take a diversion a little bit from climate because I know that's very important. But there's also something particularly in the second district that I think is hugely important. Um, I'll just start with kind of a, a more of a definition space question. So in some places you you use the word equity and then in other words you use the word equality when you use these words what do they what do they mean to you and how do you plan to incorporate them into what you're going to do as a city councilman i did not do well on my sat <laughs> i did not and if you're going to you know language please i'm not saying you're playing the language please but i'm just using it to illustrate an example a lot of my campaign staff and especially my wife gets very mad about my grammar because sometimes i write these things and i don't prove freedom and send them out so for me i'd rather talk about equity Everybody's equal in what they get, the same treatment under the law, equal protection under the law. That's what it means to me. I don't understand equality, how it's thrown around for this and thrown around for that. I don't know what that means. I think equity is a better term. That's me personally. If you want to get into a language discussion about what this means for you, it sounds more like a Talmudic discussion. If we're going to get into wordsmithing and that kind of stuff. So for me, I'm just telling you my definition of equity is I look at you the same way you look at me, the same way you look at him, and we all have the same rights under the law. That's what I'm looking at. So I want to clarify one of the things. The description you gave us is actually equality. Equality is when everybody receives an equal share. So how do you define the difference between equity and equality? Well, let me ask you this. Did what I just defined, is that closer to what you felt you meant? I think maybe. So like the fair tax, right? <laughs> the fair the tax one? is a really common example of this. Where yeah. We say if we just tax everybody at the same rate, 20%, let's say. I think that was. I have no perfect. problem with that. I'm fine with that, by the way. Yeah. So, so like if you said the flat tax, I think it is, as opposed to the fair tax, it's 10% or 20 I think we're yeah. getting into semantics here, whatever it is. I have no problem with that whatsoever. I would love to stop doing paying my accountant and just say, I made this much per year. Can I just send in the check and be done with this? Because this is a nightmare and I file for an extension every year, which means I'm going to have to deal with my taxes right around the time the actual election's happening and that's going to be a nightmare god have mercy on your soul exactly right but is that like kind of the same idea you're going here everybody gets an equal share and it's what you do with that share that matters i don't know if we're saying we're getting the same thing i say we're all entitled to the same rights okay something like that i'm not going to get into what the government has to give us because that's a whole different discussion yeah and i i agree with you there i just want to understand kind of like your perspective here right so for me I lean toward, I think there are times where equality is the thing that we need to go for, right? And there are times when equity is the thing that we need to go for. And equity is strictly when we're building in, for example, like a progressive taxation system like we have right now, that's an equitable system, or at least it's supposed to be because it accounts for the conditions that the people are under, right? So the poor, for example, would pay less under that tax because 10% of that share is a much higher share for them than, say, somebody who is a billionaire. 
And that's the criticism that typically is levied against like a flat tax or a fair tax system. So does that make sense? Do you follow where I'm going? I understand what you're saying. I need to look at the numbers. I want to do all that stuff. You understand my opinion of how I feel on this, where I'm saying everybody should be equal under the law. That's what I'm looking for. And everybody's entitled to the same rights. Everybody gets the same rights. And I think the flat tax is a great idea. I would love to find a way where my property taxes have not doubled since I've moved to Seattle. That doesn't mean it's going to be the tax system you want. It's not, doesn't mean it's going to be that idea. But at the same time, I would love to find a way where everything's paid for and we're not getting priced out of the market. Because when we talk about housing affordability, why is nobody ever bringing up the fact that we voted for so many taxes on ourselves? People are getting taxed out of the market. If I wouldn't be able to buy my house that I own now, I, I wouldn't be able to buy it now, the house that I bought all those years ago. That's a huge problem. The Jewish community in Vancouver closed because PR is shutting down. It's not closed yet, but people cannot afford to move back. They can't afford to move near their parents. And we're having the same issue here. I had this dream of buying the whole block with all the millions of dollars I don't have. And I had this dream of everybody living on the block and all my kids living there and it'd be fantastic. It'd be wonderful. Just the same way, you know, we all move back. And yeah, it's not going to happen right now. That's something we need to look into. You and I actually agree on the property tax thing because uh, I actually talked about this a little bit during the campaign. I voted against a property tax levy in Kent because property taxes are they're demonstrated to disproportionately affect the poor and the working class. And we're forcing people to choose between having basic necessities or being able to afford their homes, which is not a real choice. That's a false choice. But you and I do agree. It might be for different reasons, but we do agree that that property taxes are not. But see, that's something that's great, Sarah. All right. That you and I can agree that this is an issue. And that means that you and I can sit down and say, okay, if we agree on this, which solutions do we agree on? Which ones can we implement? Can we try and make this work? Yeah. And on top of that, like you mentioned in Vancouver, this is an example of a community being destroyed because of regressive taxation systems. I mean, it's no secret to anybody who lives in Seattle that we have the worst in the nation at this point. And I think that's a really good point. It's something that I care about protecting here. I care about making sure that we are protecting the communities that are here and making sure that people who live here can stay here and that people who come here can build a good life for themselves too. I want to be clear and say that I don't believe that a progressive tax is what necessarily solves this. I do agree that our I system right now is flawed. Right. I figured you guys would. <laughs> but I just want to be clear about that is that we're acknowledging that there's the same problem. We're all agreeing on the problem. Great. So what are the ideas that solve it? And this is actually something that's important. I mean, Fair Tax Washington is an entire movement that's come out of this. There's actually, there's been rankings nationwide of all the different states and their their taxation systems. Washington is 50 out of 50. We are the worst. And Fair Tax Washington does a, they did a whole presentation at a couple of different forums where they actually showed that dollar for dollar, the poor were being taxed almost four times as much as the, as, as much as the wealthy. So like 10% of Jeff Bezos's total wealth and his total bank accounts is different than 10% of some, like my paycheck. 10% of 100,000 is different than 10% of a of billion dollars. And that's partly where we're at in Washington is we're seeing this, this disproportionate taxation. And this is partly why I don't think a flat tax will work because the value of that, that thousand, uh, the value of that 10% of $100,000 is very different to a person that's poor and struggling versus to Jeff Bezos. Well, here's something that's different for me is that I want to know where the money's going before I say I want to take any more of it. One of the reasons I was against the head tax and one of the reasons a lot of people were against the head tax is because they... There was a track record of the city misappropriating dollars or squandering the money. I shouldn't say misappropriating. That implies there was a legal thing. We don't know if there was a legal thing, but they keep rewarding these non-performing agencies when they should be looking at them and go, okay, why are they non-performing? Who is performing? Where's the money going to? How do you spend a billion dollars on this? And the problem only gets worse. I want to know where the money's going before we discuss any new forms of taking revenue from anybody. 
regardless if they're poor, if they're wealthy or anything. I want to know where the money's going. So I want to clarify. So I did read your policy platform today and you do support cutting taxes on some people though. Cutting taxes on some people. Which part of my so policy? One in, read in it out loud for me. I will. Read it out loud for I me. have it. Thank you. Unnecessary taxes. We're so organized. Uh, levies and other taxes target landlords and are rolled over onto tenants causing rental rates to rise. If we reduce our spending on unneeded projects, we can cut the taxes used to support them. 100%. So I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. I do property management. Anytime somebody votes for one of these new taxes to go up, I'm not going to take the hit for it. So what do I do? I roll it over onto the tenants because I cannot afford to take the hit for it. That means I'm renting something below market and spending more money on it and I cannot afford to do so. What people don't realize is that they're raising their own rents every time they vote for one of these things, which is why we need a better solution. Whatever that solution is, we need a better solution for it. If we can find a way to figure out where the money's going. Where are we misspending our dollars? Where can we better spend our dollars? We have this massive budget, and I know they're spending things on it that they don't need to be spending on it that aren't even in the Seattle City Charter. Right, so I want to push you a little bit here. Be my guest. I don't think it's right to say we need to find out what that's going to be, right? So as a sitting councilman, you're expected to walk into that position with some ideas about how to do it. Because if you want to make a study happen to say, this is how we're going to do it. You're going to have to pass legislation to spend more money to do that. 100%. So you've got to have some kind of an idea how to do it, though. I do. But the first thing I want to do is I want to audit where all the money's going. Because right now, there's no comptroller for the city of Seattle. And as a numbers person, you know how important a position like that is. I didn't know what a comptroller was before all this. It was like, who's the key grip on a movie set? You don't know what that person does. What do they do? But the comptroller is the person who tracks all this money, and we don't have one. Where's all this money going? I'll give you a basic example that I know about. Last year, Shama Sawant ran an anti-Israel event using taxpayer dollars at City Hall. Israel is not a local issue. We do not control foreign policy for the U.S. government, whatever your feelings on Israel are. So why were we allowed to spend taxpayer dollars on something like that? What other things are we spending money on? How are we rewarding these non-performing agencies? Why are we gifting city land to agencies that are not developing it, not using it for low-income housing, not using it for homeless people, not using it for drug centers, none of that kind of stuff. Where is all that going? And that's what I want to know. So we're talking a lot about solutions now. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're talking about auditing and kind of evaluating the performance of it. And that was another thing I noticed for nonprofits and investing in nonprofits and making sure that the right charities are doing it, the right things. What kind of metrics are you proposing for that? That's a great question. Let's look at this for a second. Low barrier encampments like Licton Springs failed. Why are we continuing to invest in them? Now, the solution for the homeless crisis is going to take things from every single different direction. Some people are saying injection sites. Some people are saying harm reduction. Some people are saying low barrier. Well, right now, we know that the low barrier model did not work in Licton Springs. Crime went up to everywhere. They had to shut down the encampment. They had a whole bunch of problems. So why did it fail? Why did we give them more money for these kind of projects if they failed? Share and wheel have their share of controversies, no pun intended. Why are we not digging into that? Why are we just writing the checks again and again without full audited financial statements from these agencies? Why are we not doing that. These are the kind of things I want to look into. I want to find out why we keep giving the money over and over again. But the question I asked you, though, wasn't about money. It was about the performance of the nonprofit. So oh, what are the metrics for success? Yeah. Like if you were to evaluate, say, a nonprofit that worked on housing homeless people, mm -hmm. I think an obvious one would be, are they housing homeless people? So let's break this down for something that's more controversial for a second here. Injection sites. 
I went up to Vancouver to see the injection sites. The overdose rate has shot up 1,500% in Vancouver. You're the numbers person. I'm going to keep coming back to you on that kind of thing. Does that mean they're successful? Is causality, causation, we can get into that whole discussion, but the overdose rate has gone up 1,500% in Vancouver. Does that mean these things are successful? I don't know. There's a lot of other math to look at. There's a lot of other statistics to look at. How many lives have been saved because of this? Now, they told me at the injection site, they dispelled a myth for me. They said that people do die because of injection sites. Let me explain. You know how nobody ever dies at Disneyland? You know how there's that, that idea that, that, you know, that old wives tale, whatever you could want to call it, urban myth that nobody dies at Disneyland? Yeah, they drag the body off. Exactly. Right, right. It's because... The Disneyland staff cannot declare you dead. EMTs are, I don't remember if it's EMTs or medics. One of them can declare you dead, I think, not the other. They're not the ones that declare you dead. A doctor or a coroner declares you dead. So you get declared at the hospital, not at Disneyland. What's happening is some of these people, Narcan doesn't work. They take them to the hospital and they die at the hospital. And the staff at one of these sites was telling me about all this kind of stuff. Is that a measure for success? I'm trying to bring it back and answer in the most specific ways I can. What's a metric for success? I met with uh, Lisa Dugard over at Lead, and I said to her point blank, can you give me statistics on how this works? She didn't have them available. She said, well, each one's a case-by-case -case basis. Working with Jewish teens, I understand what that means. This kid, their point A was this, their point B was this. How do you get them from point A to point B? I understand how hard that can be, but metrics for success are not going from 4,000 homeless people to 13,000 homeless people in the span of a few years. That's not success when you're pouring more and more and more money into it. That is failure. That is failure. So why has that number grown so astron astronomically? I mean, some people would say it's because we rejected the head tax because the money's not there. We rejected the head tax after we already had 13,000 people. So what happened until then? Well, I think one of the things we can talk about pretty clear is we've seen rents rise in Seattle from 2010 to, it was an average, what is it now? God, I have the number here, Sarah. Oh, sorry, in 2010, it was $1,024, sorry, in 2012. And in seven years, it's gone up to $1,725. And that's the King County average. Where do you live right now? We, we live in Kent. Why do you live in Kent? Because we can't afford to live in Seattle for the same reason here. I can't afford to live on Mercer Island, so I don't you know, go over to Mercer Island and set up shop there and go there. That's not something I do. But if you also look at the breakdown of this whole kind of thing, of housing affordability and all this kind of stuff, why is nobody discussing that the city of Seattle and King County sued per, uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals? And in that lawsuit, they state that the reason that 80% of the people are on the streets right now is because of opioids and drugs. Why are we not discussing Seattle's own numbers when it comes to that? But didn't you just tell me earlier that you had an example of somebody who chose to go back to the street? And that's a mental health issue. Well, how did we let Western State Hospital get defunded, deaccredited? When in the Seattle City Charter, it says that we have an obligation and we are responsible for sanitariums. That's a terrible word, but that's what it says in the charter. We have a responsibility for mental health. And we know that mental health problems are caused by drugs and sometimes they're caused by other reasons and it's genetic and a whole bunch of other things. But we have a responsibility to take care of the people with mental health issues. We have a responsibility to take care of the people with drug issues. Why are we ignoring the fact that Seattle and King County say that 80% of these people are on the streets because of that. Part of the other reason why I think we've talked about this on the campaign in the past, one of the other major reasons is also 
we have a massive income inequality gap in Seattle. That is one of the one of the, definitely one of the main drivers because as you see these rents rise and I think Seattle average has gone up to one thousand nine hundred and twenty four dollars a month itself. Um, people are not their wages are not reflective of that at all. So we so in Seattle everybody's tried to raise that wage up to fifteen dollars an hour. So I guess the question I want to pivot to here and just pull it away from from just specifically homelessness because I think there's a lot of different factors that go into homelessness. Hundred percent. You can't just point to one, but in Seattle specifically, one of those factors is absolutely income inequality. And right now we've raised, raised the wage to fifteen $15 an hour for the minimum wage. People are talking about how 21 is really what's reasonable in order to be able to make those rents. I know you own a business in Georgetown? In Georgetown. In Georgetown. Uh, I like Starbrass down there, by the way. They have the best burger. Shout out to Starbrass. Um, I wouldn't so, know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but I mean, so you're a business owner, but how, does, how do you feel about the minimum wage in Seattle when we're talking about the income inequality gap? The minimum wage is a problem for me because my business is seasonal, so we have a lot of teenagers. So I'm paying a teenager to stand in front of a bounce house as the bouncy house tycoon that I am, trademark the stranger. I'm paying these teenagers to stand in front of the thing for minimum wage, and I have to adjust my staff because I cannot afford it the way it is. And a lot of businesses have done the same. They've made less shifts, less hours because of minimum wage. Now, I actually pay minimum wage, and I'm not required to pay the $15 an hour because of the category I fall into, and I still pay it anyway. In fact, I pay my employees more than minimum wage, the ones who are hauling things. I want to make sure they have a living wage. And I actually hire people from Millionaire's Club because I'm trying to transition them out of homeless and help with that kind of stuff. And I pay them a lot more money. I wish I could pay them for full-time jobs, but I'm a seasonal thing. It's Seattle. And eight months out of the year, it's raining and nobody wants a bounce house. So I'm very popular for four months out of the year. But for me, in terms of income inequality, I want to raise everybody up, not bring somebody down to raise somebody else up. I want to make sure that everybody can afford to live here. And something that nobody's discussing, which I really wish people were discussing more, when you discuss about the housing affordability crisis, and you look at what's going on with houses, nobody's discussing the onerous codes that are stopping building. When Boeing came here in the 1930s and 40s, they were able to build a lot of houses for a lot of people very quickly. Thousands of people came here because of World War II to gear up Boeing with all the planes and everything they needed for war, and they didn't have this issue. Here in Seattle, it's taken me three years to get a permit on one single family house. It took me years to get the youth center built for our synagogue. That's the kind of stuff we got to adjust because it's a supply and demand issue. We need more supply to lower the cost of housing. So I'm glad you brought that up because vacancy rates in Seattle are actually over 10% every single district. Mm -hmm. So how do you account for that? Because there's a lot of factors that go into it. The vacancy rates, they're still charging an arm and a leg for these kind of things. And you still need to factor that into something. Also, we're not discussing foreign investment in a lot of these properties. That was something that Vancouver did that I need to look into more. I'm not saying one way or the other. It's going to get me in trouble with somebody and I haven't done the math on that and I haven't researched the facts on that. But I want to look into that because Vancouver did it and then the housing market dropped dropped exponentially. That's something they're looking at in Israel right now because so many people buy these apartments in Israel. We were just there for my son's bar mitzvah and we were in an apartment building that was completely empty. That's something that's got to be looked into also. So when we talk about vacancy rates, I know you just mentioned that the problem is permits restricting development, but the vacancy rates are the number of, of apartments that are sitting empty in all these areas. Yes. So they're in uh, South Lake Union, you have 18% vacancy. Downtown proper, you have 16%. First Hill Queen Anne is 11%. Magnolia is 11%. Tequila is 15%. Red, Redmond is 12%. So are with with those numbers in mind, that's a huge, that's a large number, almost 20% in a lot of these areas that's just sitting empty because these rents are too high and people can't afford to live there 
because of income inequality being so bad. So what is it about permitting that you think is keeping rents high or keeping us from ha- reaching the demand if there's already all these areas where we have all this empty housing that's not being used? Bunch of reasons. It's a lot of stuff. And if you want to get into the whole thing, we can do that. But it's also, number one, they're still charging the same rates. Have they adjusted for the fact that people are not willing to pay that and they're going to Kent and they're commuting into Seattle or they're doing whatever? Have they woken up to that fact yet? But it's also something is that the development costs are so high, so high because of some of the stuff. People like me, I can barely make a profit anymore doing a lot of these development things. And as a result, I have to charge a certain amount to make my money back. And it's not a winning proposition anymore. And don't forget, these permits went in years and years and years ago because it takes so long to develop them. They still have the same costs at the end of that road. So it's the people who are willing to pay it and there's the people who can't afford to pay it. That's one aspect of it. So... These are all really good questions, actually. I'm, I'm really happy we're talking about it. So let's talk about this then. So you mentioned that they haven't adjusted the price. How do you... Okay, great. We have a statement of fact, though. Should we engage in acts like rent control? No, because if rent control worked, Manhattan would be the cheapest real estate in the country. Well, I think... But there are other places that it has worked, right? For example, Singapore has a really good example of rent control. Germany also has rent control. So I don't think you can just cite a single example like that and say... Yep, that didn't work. And in fact, we can criticize Manhattans in a lot of really good ways. So I also think that I can't compare the European economies to the US economies that way. There's different factors when it comes up in that kind of stuff. No, I'm saying is that if you want to get into a deeper discussion of international economies against each other, I know about the Manhattan ones because I used to deal with the Manhattan ones. So are you just saying that you just don't know enough about it? I'm saying that right now, if you want to have a discussion on rent control, the only thing I have researched is with regards to the Manhattan ones. That's what I know. I know about the huge fraud in the system. I know about all the problems in the system. If you want to have a discussion on rent control and say, hey, let's discuss rent control, I will do my research. I will come back here and we can have a huge discussion on rent control. Um, but I also want to talk about something that I think is really important in District 2 specifically. And it's I had a, a, a big foothold here. Um, this district is near and dear to my heart. Most of my friends live in D2, actually. Um, but so there exists, there's there's a large population of East and West African immigrants in D, in District 2. And I got this question a lot too when I was running. I'm I'm a, a white woman. And so you are, we've talked about people of color and what however you choose to identify is entirely up to you. But so these people that are East and West African and don't see themselves reflected in you, how do you intend to represent these people? I think you might be asking that question a little differently than I would ask it. How would you ask it? I'd say, are you a human being? Am I a human being? I'd say, what issues are near and dear to you? What do we agree on? How can I best represent those issues for you? It doesn't matter what color my skin is so that I can represent you. Because if you look at me and you see a white guy, you don't, you're ignoring the thousands of years of Jewish history. You're ignoring all that. You're throwing all that out the window. Do I understand oppression? A hundred percent. Do I understand persecution? A hundred percent. Do I understand racism? A thousand percent. I understand all this kind of stuff. It shouldn't be about that. It should be about what issues are important to you that you want me to represent. People ask me all the time. They say, what are your core issues? What's your elevator speech? I said, uh-uh. What do you want me to represent for you what are your core issues rather than what are my core issues. So with regards to people of color, am I a person of color? We had this discussion before because I'm Jewish. Am I a person of color? Am I not a person of color? It depends who you ask. Some people say I am. Some people say I'm not. I say, well, I don't really get to make that call because other people seem to be making it for me, which is unfortunate. I'd rather say what is important to you that you want me to represent. And a lot of these communities, a lot of these communities come to me and say they're ignoring the faith-based communities. They're not discussing our morals. They're not discussing our beliefs. I say, great. How can I represent that for you? 
I, I want to clarify one thing, though, and I think you said it there. The reason why we use phrases like people of color is strictly because it is about how other people treat you. That's exactly about how other people see you and how people treat how it is. So, for example, talk about my own background. Uh, I have a small of skin. Like, I'm not exactly white. I have some features that are, and I have some features that aren't. So, when I grew up in Arizona, if I was on the north side of town, I would get called Hispanic slurs. I would be referred to as the Mexican. I would be referred to those kind of things. But when I went to the south side of town where my friends who were actually Hispanic were from, or Latino or Latinx, um, they would call me Weto, which just means the dumb white guy. And so that's exactly the point. I think that's a, something that is a thing that is important to keep in mind there. It's about how is society treating you? And so that's the question that I'm asking you. So as a politician, that's a thing that you have to be aware of. You have to be aware of how is it that society is going to treat the most marginalized? And it's not because of how they identify. Sometimes it is. But it's because of how society treats them and identifies them. I'm trying to treat everybody the way I would want to be treated. And I know that sounds cliched. It <laughs> sounds it, it sounds so cliched. But when somebody comes into my company looking for a job, I go, can you lift this? I don't care what color your skin is. Can you lift this thing? I had a, I had a girl apply for the job. And this may be a little sexist. You may not like this so much. But I said, that thing weighs 800 pounds. Can you lift it? And she did it. She did it. And that was that. I'm like, you got the job. You're hired. That's it. So for me, it's that a matter of what can I represent for you? I don't know every race's issues. I don't know every race's problems. I don't know every race's history. I want them to come to me and say, you know, there's been a history of this. For example, the Jewish community used to be in the Central District. We're not there anymore because of huge amounts of anti-Semitism. We came to Seward Park. We had a big, big problem. The Langston Hughes Cultural Center was one of the biggest synagogues, one of the oldest synagogues in Seattle. We're not there anymore. I understand these kind of things. Bring them to me. Let's talk about them. Tell me why this is important to you. Tell me what makes it important to you. Tell me how I can help and let's make that happen. I've been hanging out a lot with the Asian community. It's very interesting how similar our history is, our shared experiences that you could actually substitute the word Jewish for Asian and Asian for Jewish. There's so much in common between the two and we have a lot of shared values and that's been awesome to me. I've been discussing a lot with the Muslim community. There's a lot of shared values. One guy said to me, he said this and this is okay somebody's gonna get mad about this joke but he goes yeah we're like cousins who hate each other's guts but now we get along because we're in america and we're not over there fighting about this kind of stuff that was really funny to me that was really entertaining to me but we have a lot of shared values we have a lot of shared experiences i want to be that representative for everybody i want them to talk to me about their biggest deepest darkest fears and problems that they haven't felt comfortable talking to anybody else about before so I think one of the things that, especially when talking in terms of race, uh, I was always taught to couch politics in terms of race. That was something that a, a campaign a staffer told me at one point that I suddenly changed my entire perspective on it. But I mean, there's we cannot deny that the kind of racism that exists for the Jewish community also deeply exists in the black community and also deeply exists in the immigrant community as well. And I mean, I, for one, I'm, I love Seattle's position as a sanctuary city. Um, but I mean, there's also this particular issue especially in D2, it's specific to District 2, where the black community is largely opposed to the youth jail that's being built in, in Rainier Beach. So I wanted to get your perspective on it. What is your perspective as a, a resident in District 2, just a resident in District 2 of, of the youth jail? What would you do about whether or not you support it or don't support it as a sitting council member? I think we have a different problem when it comes to the youth jail, which we need to talk about. Where have we failed in education that got a kid to be headed towards a youth jail? 
I think we need to discuss that first. For me, my parents went through a pretty bad divorce. Look at the, how honest I'm getting with you guys. They went through a pretty bad divorce. And there were some really rough times for me growing up as a kid where I could have gone down a bad path. But I was very lucky that I had certain mentors in my life that looked out for me. I don't think we have enough of that in the schools. I think we're too busy making sure they ace the SATs or whatever it is or keeping them off drugs or whatever else the case may be that we've forgotten that they're people and they're not just products. I think we need to address that at the education level before we even get to the jail level. Now you ha get into a kid who has these problems. What do you do with a kid with those problems? Is it something that they need diversion? When I went to visit the courts to learn about the system failure document, I went to check that out and I went to observe a bunch of courts. There was a scared teenager there who had done something very, very stupid. It was his first offense. And the judge said, okay, you're on probation for this amount of time and I want you to go to this kind of counseling and that kind of thing. He could have put him in jail for a year. Could have done. It was Judge McKenna, by the way. Could have put him in jail for a year. He didn't. And he gave him this diversion thing. But then you have these guys who have 72 convictions and they keep getting diverted and they keep being sent out back out onto the street. Do we want kids in a jail? No. How do they end up there? What gets them there? How can we solve that before we even have that problem? I know it sounds like a dodge. Are you in favor of the youth jail? Are you not in favor of the youth jail? I don't know what kind of kids we're dealing with. I don't know what their offenses are. I'd rather say, how do we stop kids from going down a path of crime? How do we stop kids from going that way? Can we address that? Then we won't need the youth jail. And that may sound like a pie in the sky ideal, but that's where I want to be. I want to focus on how we can make our education system better. And as a city council member, there's only so much you can really do with the education system. But how can we make it better so we don't have to build a youth jail? That's what I want to look into. Sure. And I totally agree. And I think that that's really a conversation that we need to have at the macro level. But the reality for the people living in Rainier Beach is whether we want to talk about what got the kids to this point, point or not, that youth jail is being built. That money is there for it. So how do you how do you stand on it as a sitting council member with it being a factual thing that's going to be built? It is going to be there whether we want it to be there or not. What, whoever we're dealing with, that youth jail is going up. I want to see who's going to the youth jail. I want to look into that before, before you before you choose to support it or not support uh, 100%. it. hundred percent. I want to know who's who's it designed for. Who youth. is this jail designed for? I want to know who's going there. Youth. No, I understand Kids. youth, but what did they do? I mean, think this is the no, no, no. Because I worked with teenagers for years. I worked with teenagers so for years, right? So then you and I understand the same thing. You catch a kid smoking pot one time. You catch a kid doing drugs one time. Where they was it peer pressure? Was it this? Was it that? Did they deserve jail? Did they deserve to be lenient? Was it a family issue? Was it this? There's so many different factors when it comes to kids. Who are they planning on putting in the youth jail? I mean, I think we can answer that question. Young black men are disproportionately jailed at a rate that is almost eight times as high as their white counterparts. What did they do? You're missing my point. You're, no, I'm no, hearing no. your point. I'm hearing your point 100%. I'm saying, what are the offenses we're talking about? Are we talking about murder? Are we talking about low-level vandalism? What are we talking about? Well, the, the statistic that I gave you is specifically saying that they're doing the same things white kids are. I don't think it should be as we get back to the equality discussion. I don't think it should be rules different from one person than the other. Right. So I want to come back to a section on your policy platform for a second here. And this is one that stood out to me pretty heavily. You have a section on there on justice reform. And the only thing that I could find on there was about maintaining the current probation system, the current funding for it. That's the only policy that's on there. But the name itself is justice reform. But your policy platform doesn't have any reform in it. Because I haven't finished writing it yet. So what would you have? <laughs> there's, a, there's a whole long list that we're working on right now because what happened was as we were working on all this stuff, the website is a work in progress. We're actually redoing certain. There's no environmental section on there either. 
that's something we haven't gotten into because that's something I'm still doing my research on. With the justice reform, when we were starting to dig into that section, that's when the system failure document came out. And I wanted to find out what reforms were in place. But at the same time we were writing that thing, that's when they were discussing defunding and probation services and all these judges were opposed to it. And I spoke to the judges about why they're opposed to it and why they want it and that kind of stuff. And that's the kind of thing that I was concerned about happening. So that was written in the moment. 100% that was written in the moment. That section is incomplete. And I need to finish doing my research so we can add to that section. All right. So I'm going to push you a little bit harder. Be my guest. You've been doing research for a while then. Mm -hmm. You've got to have at least one platform piece you'd add to it that you can commit to right now with me. What is it? That we enforce the law. That we enforce the law. That may not be justice reform the way you're looking for it. I'm talking about law overall. The fact that if I park somewhere for two hours, I get a parking ticket, but an RV can park in front of my cemetery and deal drugs and be there for 72 hours desecrating the property, that's not equality. That's not equality. I want to make sure we're enforcing the laws. I want to make sure we're doing that. I want to make sure that we're not diverting guys with 72 convictions back onto the street. I want to find out why that is going wrong. I want to find out why when we have those level of offenders, we're turning jails into homeless shelters when there are certain people who belong in jail. And I want to figure out why those people keep being sent back onto the streets. And it's these 100 prolific offenders. They're just a group of a bunch of them that are terrorizing businesses and homeowners. Who belongs in jail? People who who commit these crimes over and over, who are danger to society. So I'm going to call back to another piece on your platform then. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's about homelessness. So you state that with regard to the programs, we need to be able to differentiate between those looking to get help and those who have no interest in helping themselves. Can you clarify what you mean by that? hundred percent. Also, for yeah. example, some people are not in the right mental state to help themselves. So do they need mental health? Do they need drug treatment health? That's a, a help. That's the kind of thing that we need to solve. Who needs that? It really ticks me off when people say Ari doesn't want to help the people on the streets. I hate when they say that. He wants to put the homeless in jail. No, that's not what I want to do. I want to put the criminals in jail. They're not doing background checks on people and they're finding people with outstanding warrants. I know that the people who come to my neighborhood who are dealing drugs out of SUVs when bullets come through the windows of my office. If you want to see a video of it, happy to give you the tour. Come on down to my office. We still have the bullet holes. It's a fun souvenir. You come on down and check it out. They are preying on this population and we need to take care of that. We need to take care of these prolific offenders. We need to take care of that. That's what I meant by somebody not helping themselves. I'm not talking about somebody without the mental capacity to help themselves. And you bring up a good point. I should probably reword that section because I see where people can get the wrong opinion. I see where that can be. And that will be part of my rewrite because we had this interview tonight. 100%. I, I appreciate you sitting down with us. I know sometimes we, we differ on things like we differ on Camaros and Mustangs. We differ on DC <laughs> and Marvel. Differ on the youth jail. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we do I, differ that much on it. Uh, so, but I'm really, really excited that you sat down and talked with us. This has been fun. Like I'm having a great time and I hope you are too. Absolutely. I like getting these kind of questions because the other things have been such puff pieces at these forums. They're really starting to wear on me a little bit. I'm like, can we get a little spice in here? A little something? Just have a little bit more fun with it? So yeah, getting back to that, I, the people who are preying on these people need to be dealt with. We cannot leave the most vulnerable of our society to be preyed on by this group. I just want to ask one follow-up question to that. Sure. How do you define that? Because a lot of times people turn to crime because of mental health issues. And I just want to ask a, an in tandem question too. How do you define what communities are considered most marginalized? Okay, I'm going to take those one at a time. Let's Perfect. go back to yeah. Let's go back to that one. Ask yours again. So I want to just clarify then. You're talking about you want to help those who help themselves, and you're talking about how we need to take the criminals out of those encampments, and we need those kind of things. It's well documented though that 
crime is a multifaceted issue. There's socioeconomic concerns, there's mental health concerns, there's drug use concerns. Those are all things that kind of contribute to it. And in my opinion, it's hard to link those, uh, unlink those things and decouple them. But how are you going to make that determination? I'm not disagreeing with that point you just made at all. I'm saying is that just like dealing with the youth, just like dealing with anything else, it's a case-by-case basis. Is this person stealing to fund their drug habit because they can't get clean yet? Is this person stealing because they have mental health issues and they don't understand what they're doing? Of course, those people are going to be dealt with differently than a person with multiple convictions and they don't have a drug problem and they don't have a mental health problem. They're just exercising criminal behavior. You have to deal with those things differently. Have you read the system failure document? Myself? Yes. No, I have not. You really need to dive into that. You really need to dig into it because it's very telling about the kinds of people they're talking about because they were trying to remove all that stuff from the equation. They were trying to get rid of those things that we were just discussing. And I really recommend you read it because it's very eye-opening. So to me, the only person that would cleanly fit in your category, there are going to be psychopaths. And you think there aren't any on the Seattle streets right now? No, I think there are, but we know that they are a very small segment of the community at large. So let's take Manhattan for a minute. Did you ever live in New York? No, I have not. So Rudy Giuliani, and I know his name is not the most popular one these days, but Rudy Giuliani, when he was mayor of New York, do you know what the squeegee men were? Squeegee men, this was interesting. You'd come off the highway into Manhattan, and this guy would come running out to your car and spritz your window and demand money from you if he if you didn't give it to him for cleaning your windshield with this dirty liquid and things like that. They thought there were thousands of them in the city that they were terrorizing motorists. You had those in LA too when I lived there. For, perfect. You understand. So what they said was, it's quality of life thing. We're going to go after those guys. And it turned out there were only a few hundred of them. Most of them had prior records before. And as soon as they got rid of them, people started seeing the city differently. Can we go after that small population, the one we agree on? The one we agree on. We can disagree on other stuff. We can say this is drug related. This is mental health related, which I actually think we agree on. I don't think we disagree on that. Can we go after the ones that we know are true danger that should not be on the streets? Can we go after them first as a small step and say we're going to try and make the city a little bit safer with that step? Uh, yes, we can. But the, where I'm pushing you on here is I don't think you can cleanly make that distinction. I don't think you're going to be able to cleanly separate, oh, this guy has multiple convictions for his drug use versus somebody who's had multiple convictions for his drug use and now wants to get clean. When I was in court observing these things, when I was in court observing these things, a guy was in there with multiple, multiple convictions for assault. He had no record of drug use. He had no record of any of that kind of stuff. That's the kind of person I'm talking about. Is it going to be hard to differentiate? Are we going to be looking at these people in a different way? different way trying to solve this problem a hundred percent but i think if we look at it from a safety perspective who demonstrates a threat to society not because of drugs not because of this the people who are on drugs we need to get them the treatment they need we need to get them the health they need that is not up for debate in my opinion that's something we have to take care of right now right away we need to also keep people safe and right now people do not feel safe and one last question here so let's suppose we made that distinction what do we do with them we have jails that are unoccupied right now now, mind you, I am not an expert in the Department of Corrections. I know that you need to rehabilitate a person and you need to make sure that they have a place to go afterwards and that they have a job afterwards and they have to be brought back into society. I cannot tell you about criminal justice reform in that regard with regards to corrections. That's something I need to research more. If you're asking my opinion on corrections, I know that a lot of times we create more criminals than we're trying to stop. But at the same time, right now, they are a danger to you and me. How do we stop that right now? 
and fix that issue? And can we reform the justice system at the same time? I don't know how much of that is under the Seattle Council approach. And that may not be my fight to have. That may be somebody else's fight to have. But can we have the conversation over it rather than saying, Ari Hoffman wants to put all the homeless people in jail. Can we have the conversation and say, no, what we want to do is we want to sit down and figure out the best solution for these people so we can reintegrate them back into society rather than locking them in the cage for the rest of their lives. So this is kind of where my factiness comes in. <laughs> factiness. <laughs> the She's going to throw statistics at me. I will. And I just want to see kind of what you do with them. So Seattle City Council does, they have a lot that they can do as far as police reforms, as far as citywide criminal justice reforms, as far as citywide dealing with things like homelessness. Um, and then, and and a lot of things like dealing with rent control and stuff like that. And with, when you talk about what to do with these people, this is kind of where it's, it's how the impact of city politics on a larger scale. So this is kind of where it becomes bigger. It becomes more about King County and then Washington State as a whole, and then it includes the federal criminal justice reform. And let me explain why. So when you take these people and you throw them in jail, it costs in the state of Washington per person per day, it costs an average of about $103.08 per, per day. So that becomes a very expensive problem that's no longer just the city of Seattle because we've made that choice as, as city councilmen to implement something like that. Um, so how would you account for, how would you justify to constituents in putting that cost on them? as taxpayers instead of investing in things like preventative measures and investing in things like affordable housing and investing in things like housing the homeless in these these areas that have these massive vacancies so how would you how would you justify asking taxpayers to pay that much per day per person that you, you put in kind jail? of you kind of veered off at the end of your thing there. You had me at the beginning and then it <laughs> kind of went somewhere else. I understand what you're saying, but you need to separate the distinction. Sure. Number one, do people in Seattle feel safe right now? A lot of them don't. You come down to Georgetown, I drive to my office in the morning, I'm not sure if all my stuff is going to be there. My truck has been broken into, my warehouse has been broken into. A lot of people have crazier, way crazier stories than mine about what has happened to their businesses. Do people feel safe in your city? Now, I ask you, with a repeat offender who has 72 convictions, what would you do with them? It depends on what the convictions are for. And this is kind of what we've talked about. If it's for something like mental health, this is when we need to focus on mental health facilities and true mental health treatment and things like that. And it's the same thing with opioid addiction. Great. Now, what if you do with somebody who doesn't have an opioid problem and doesn't have a mental health problem who has 72 convictions? If you actually have someone that's committing crimes on the street, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's for the justice system to decide. But that's where we also get into this whole idea of criminal justice reform as a whole, right? Because that person with those 72 convictions, and we cannot deny this, this is statistically fact, that person is going to be treated differently if they're a white man versus a black man. I'm not getting into the racial aspect of this because you have the statistics and I don't know enough about them to discuss the statistics. But what I'm saying is that let's talk about keeping people safe right now because I know the majority of people in the Georgetown area who are living in those RVs, I don't see people of color. I see white people. And those are the people who are breaking into the warehouses because we have them on video and we've seen that kind of stuff going on. So I'm eliminating race from this conversation for this purpose right now, not overall relating. Watch, that's going to be the sound clip somebody takes right out of this whole thing. (laughs) Ari's eliminating race from the whole conversation. What I'm saying is that what are you going to do to keep the community safe? What are you going to do? And can we have the discussion on a state level? The fact that Western State Hospital was defunded, de-accredited, all that kind of stuff was a failure at every single level of government. Did people talk to each other? Did people try to save it? Let's say you get elected and I get elected. Can I give you a call and say, hey, how can we fix this so that Seattle's better? We don't agree on everything, but where do we agree so we can break this down? So we can fix this. I agree with you. The costs are astronomical. A hundred percent. I'm not disagreeing with you. And I agree that the results are not always the best, right? In fact, they're far from the best. We have a lot of people who just cycle through our justice system. That was the report that I cited. 
the prolific offenders report. I recommend that you check it out. But can we sit down and have that discussion rather than getting into these issues of people flying to the border or flying to Amazon that have no bearing on Seattle? They're going to Amazon to stop. Um, they're going to New York to stop Amazon from coming to New York. What does that have to do with Seattle? What does that have to do with anything in Seattle? They're having anti-Israel events in City Hall. What does that have to do with Seattle? Can we focus on how this affects Washington State, how this affects Seattle? Can we have that conversation? And can we have it between the two of us on different levels of government? So I want to clarify one thing. So, all right, let's set aside the question about uh, what's going on with the homelessness and what's going on with that kind of thing. So I want to talk about safety. So one of the things that you state is after we trim the bloat, we can get more police. Do you think that's going to make people more safe? Right now, we're operating at 60% of capacity of the Seattle Police Department. We don't have enough police. When they're spreading these new patrols all over the place, they're taking them from other places. Right now, I understand that some people view the police in a certain way, but let's look at them at the way I view them. Every single week when I walk up to my synagogue and there's an armed security guard there, I'm thankful they're there. Every time I see a cop car parked in front of my synagogue, I am thankful they are there. Last year when the thing happened out at the cemeteries and somebody called the police and said, Ari Hoffman plans on shooting the homeless people out at the cemeteries. Yes, somebody actually called the cops on me about that whole thing. And there were four squad cars out there. I was upset that I had gotten the volunteers. We could have just had the Seattle police show up. For me, as a community that has been persecuted in all these different countries, when I see the police, I am happy I see them. I understand that not everybody shares that perspective. And I understand that you have to be sensitive about that. And I know that a lot of people talk about it, but one thing that's a problem is I think that the police officers do not live in the communities that they patrol. And I think they can't afford to live in Seattle. And I think we should be paying them a wage so that they can afford to live in Seattle and at the same time try to bring down costs of living here. Because when you're part of a community, you feel more part of that community. Sergio Garcia, I'm not endorsing him. I'm not not endorsing him. We're just talking about him today. Right. Sergio Garcia, he believes in his community because he lives in his community. That's where he used to patrol until this election thing happened. Now he's patrolling somewhere else because they thought it was, you know, kind of weird that he's patrolling the community he's running in, whatever, a whole different thing. But he's patrolling somewhere else, if I'm not mistaken. We need to make sure that the officers are involved in their community, that they care about their community, not just looking at them as units or anything like that. We need to make sure they have the racial sensitivity training. I'll give you an example with Alaska Airlines. This is a funny one. Jews wear tefillin phylacteries, those black boxes they put on their arms. A bunch of them went to pray in the back of an Alaska Airlines plane, and the Alaska Airlines flight attendants thought that the plane was being taken over by terrorists. So they diverted the flight, and there was a whole thing about this. So they actually had to have racial sensitivity training on Jewish ritual law so that this wouldn't happen again. It's very entertaining. It's funny. I understand the concerns some communities have about this, but I did a ride along with SPD. And what happened was there were four units covering an area meant for nine units. So when there was an accident down at the light rail, all four units were there, and I was watching the calls come in and come in and come in and come in, and nobody was dealing them for so. For two hours, nobody's watching Rainier Beach because people are dealing with an accident at the light rail. Do we need to make sure they have the right training? Yes. We need to make sure they're part of the community. Yes. But we also need to make sure there's more of them. I think that's going to draw us into a, uh, into the next question that we kind of wanted to talk about. So this one is, this one's something that we've, there's been some talk about. I know that when you recently spoke at a, at a high school, you talked about civility in politics. So that was, it was a middle school. Sorry. Okay. Correction for the record. You spoke to a middle school <laughs> and talked about civility and politics. What does civility and politics mean to you? Civility and politics means what we're doing right now. You guys want to talk to me. You said, Ari, can you come in for a podcast? And I said, absolutely. I don't know if I put it that way exactly in the Facebook messaging, but I'm happy to talk to anybody. And what upsets me is when people attack me online and I say, hey, you want to grab a, coffee, a cup of coffee and talk about it? 
and they find every way of dancing out of having that cup of coffee and then go back to calling me names on Twitter. I can deal with the things they say about me. Some of them are comical. I really can deal with it. My wife is a different story. My kids are a different story. I can handle it. You've been through this. You understand. At the same time, it's that can we have an, a discussion like this, a frank discussion where we say, hey, I like DC, you like Marvel, or we both like these characters, and we realize that we're people on the other sides of these things rather than just attacking the idea of somebody. Something interesting happened. Somebody posted online, how did I not know Ari Hoffman ran a bounce house company? And this person was big, one of the biggest critics of Seattle is dying. What is my segment in Seattle is dying about? It mentions I run a bounce house company. It's a pretty prime example. This person didn't actually watch the video they were ripping. Whether you like Seattle is dying, whether you disagree with Seattle is dying, did you watch the video? So can we have the discussion about civility? Can we have a civil discussion rather than yelling at each other over Facebook, rather than tweeting about each other? Can we sit down and have that discussion? So let's ask a follow-up. The stolen yard signs that's going on. Mm-hmm. You may have heard there was a FOIA request for some emails you sent to SPD. Okay. So the the question that I'm asking you here then is what went on with that? So there's a there's a phone call that went out. There's a lot of stuff that happened. There's accusations being going on there. Do you want to speak to your side of it? Absolutely. 100%. When you're being attacked around the clock, you start being very, very concerned about your family's safety, about how far will a person go when they tweet more about you than you tweet. When they talk about sending protesters to your events, that when you have security at an event and they're standing outside and some people show up and see the security and just leave, what were their intentions? If they didn't have nefarious intentions, why did they leave? I have no problem with people asking me the hard questions. I'm sitting here with you guys right now. I have no problem with this whatsoever. In fact, at one of my events, we took questions from the internet. We took questions from the crowd and some of them were really specific. And I, I just want to say you came here alone too. Like it wasn't like That's you, brave. you didn't bring any armed guards tonight. No, Maybe why would I? I, don't know, I look very tough. Uh, I know you guys are really, really scary. <laughs> That's uh, why would I bring the guards? I bring the guards to the public events. I have ways of protecting my family. I have ways of protecting my community. I was not really concerned about coming to a podcast <laughs> with you guys. Um, I'm not saying you're not scary in your own ways or whatever it is, but I wasn't concerned about that. The emails and things like that. Let's get a little bit more specific about what happened. 30 yard signs were stolen in one night from almost all Jewish houses. You can tell what a Jewish house is if you know what to look for. And people who know Jewish families, you know exactly what to look for. That freaked people out. That really scared them because a lot of these people have never been involved in politics before. It really terrified them. The person who was doing it lived on the same block where 10 of them disappeared from. The interesting thing is about the person who took these yard signs, whoever that person was, whatever happened, it had the same MO. Now you say, how's there an MO for stolen yard signs, right? They took the sign but left the metal stakes in the ground. Not very eco-friendly. Did that with every single one of them. And the other thing is the person who said they took the yard signs from one public space, whatever it is, now mind you, roundabouts, you can argue over whether they're public space or not because they're not specified. You can get into that whole discussion. They kept saying they took multiple signs. I only put one there. Where the other signs come from? Now, that's speculation on my part. On my part. But at the same time, these are a lot of things that people are very concerned about. This person also bragged online about stealing my yard signs. So I, I read the comment. That didn't read like a brag. They told you they did it. That wasn't the only one. Okay. This person also was messaging my wife. I'm sorry, not messaging my wife. This person was messaging me while looking at my wife's Facebook profile. For example, we went to a wedding. And I didn't post about that wedding yet. 
And this person sent me a very nasty message that said, and have fun at the wedding. My wife was posting about the wedding, not me. That's scary. That's very, very scary. This person went to the same gym I did. I don't remember ever meeting them. This gym, so a lot of these people who are posting about me was a gym I went to that I quit because I'm lazy. And <laughs> now it seems like there is a holy war against me from some of the members of this gym. And it's very, very unfortunate because this gym claims to be a very welcoming place that they want everybody there. Meanwhile, the owner of this gym called my brother-in-law a Nazi because they didn't like his voting preferences and his grandmother is a Holocaust survivor. These are things that freak us out as Jews living in America. The owner of this gym was talking about offering to hide us in her basement when Donald Trump got elected because they might come for us. That's not really a normal conversation you have. These are things that freak people out. Also, here's something else. When I first started running, I spoke to SPD about all this stuff. And I said, what do I report? What do I not report? And they said to me, report everything. Report every single thing, no matter how big, no matter how small. And I listened to SPD and I did exactly what they told me to do. And that's what I did. Because this stuff is scary to somebody who's been part of a race that has been persecuted for years. And especially when some of these things are coming from a person who has a Twitter account that has a lot of things that are bordering on anti-Semitism, that are bordering on anti-Israel hatred, that go back for years. So is it about me because I'm running for office or is it because of the thing that's on top of my head? And I guess that brings me to a, a question. You are, it's a little... Less intense, less local. This is, I like relating back to national politics, as everyone will attest. Uh, but this one is, you could feel free to decline or, or give an answer, don't give an answer. But give me the question. I'm, uh, I'm hoping you'll answer. Um, who did you vote for for president in the 2016 general election? My father-in-law. He had a better ground game than me. I would have run it, but my mother-in-law was making phone calls for him. I did not vote for either candidate because for me, none of them lined up with who I am. None of them lined up with my values. And for me... I'm about policy, not about party. So I have voted for, I voted for Al Gore. I voted for George Bush. I voted for different people before. And neither one of the candidates I saw myself in. So any piece of, you know, you look for a candidate that you go, can I 75 or can I 55%? Can I something? I couldn't get behind either one of them. So I didn't vote for either one of them. All right. Is there somebody in this election cycle that you're looking at that you think is maybe good? We have our personal favorites here. We've detailed those, but how do you feel like anybody you're looking at right now that you're like, yeah, maybe that's the person. Any of the 900 people on the Democratic ticket? <laughs> <laughs> so because I'm more of an old school when it comes to the Democrat Party, um, Geraldine Ferraro was at my bar mitzvah. That's where I come from on this kind of stuff. I don't really see anybody yet who's represents that. Now, mind you, there's so much noise. I haven't gone into who any of them are. And it seems like they're all racing to the left to out left each other. And... I don't want to see that. I want to see them being who they are. Something that was fascinating with the Republican race last time around was that it didn't appear to me as if they were chasing the hard right or anything like that. This is just my perception of it. It seemed like Marco Rubio was this and Ted Cruz was this and Donald Trump was that. And I kept saying, oh, please, God, not Donald Trump. Please, God, not that. I was hoping for somebody else. And I really wanted Marco Rubio. That was somebody I could get behind in the last thing. Would I have voted for him against Hillary? Don't know. I don't know how it stacked up. I don't know any of that kind of stuff. I was not a fan of Hillary. I know too much to be a fan. I got stories. But that's a whole nother discussion. With the Democrat ticket, I am so tired of them trying to outdo each other. I want to hear who they are. That's what I want to hear. And maybe that's why, and I'm not an expert in national politics, maybe that's why Joe Biden is polling so high because people think they know who he is. I wish he would just be who he is. 
That's my thing. It's not for me. It's not about party. It's about who can I get behind? Who do I agree the majority with? Who do I think represents my ideals? Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. This has been about an hour and a half. Um, but I mean, I really, I appreciate you taking the time to come sit with us. I appreciate you answering our questions. We tried to do right and not ask any softballs and kind of make it interesting. Well, thank you. Uh, you're very welcome. But we are. Uh... I got to ask hard questions. Give me. No, no, no. Oh, no. Are they? I'm saying, yeah. I'm saying that was I think they were responsible questions. Thank you. I think that you asked the questions that a lot of people want to know. In fact, I think there are a few more out there that you wanted to ask that you weren't sure if you should be asking. And if you want to do the after podcast podcast, I'm happy to talk. I can't believe it's been an hour and a half. Holy cow. It's it's been wow. That's really long. Here's my thing that I said. I said this in Seattle is dying. I say it on everything. I say, I want to do my job and go. I want to fix Seattle and I want to go back to work. That's what I want to do. I am missing my family. You know what this is like. I am missing spending time with my family. I am that dad who's always coaching baseball and who's always there for his kids and who's always working on his community and have no time anymore. This is depressing for me. I want to fix Seattle so that I can continue to live here and not have to think about my family that's fourth generation Seattle on my wife's side that they want to leave town. And I am, I completely understand what you're talking about. I lost a lot of time with my family, but so when, uh, actually if my husband wasn't my campaign manager, I don't think we ever would have seen each other, <laughs> but, uh, did a lot of Uber eats at the campaign office dates. So I totally understand. But I mean, you know, where can people find you? If people want to know more about you, what's your website? What's your social media handles? Where can they find you? Absolutely. So Hoffman for Seattle, that's Hoffman F O R Seattle, just like the West Wing Bartlett for America. So you can check that out. Hoffman for Seattle. That's why I did it by the way. And also you can check us out on Facebook. Our Hoffman for Seattle City Council. My Twitter handle is the Hoffather. That's where you can see the real fun. If you go over to Twitter, I don't even post that much. You can just see what they write about me. But if you want to engage with me, I always email you back. I always call you back. Calling is getting a little tougher these days because of the amount of phone calls I get. But on Facebook, you're always talking to me. Email, you're always talking to me. You're not talking to a staffer because I want to be there the way my representatives never were for me. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of uh, out of your Monday night to come and sit with us and talk with us. And th- on this podcast, at least, we believe this conversation about uh, Seattle politics and District 2 is better left to Ari Hoffman. Thank you guys for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank Thanks, you. Ari. Just let them all